Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm one of our preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. And uh, before we get to our sermon today, um, obviously the last uh, two weeks in our country have been a pretty sad and sobering one. Um, I mean, you, you start with the fact that we had nine African Americans, our brothers and sisters, murdered in a church. And you're just reminded that the sin of racism is still in our country, still able to produce unspeakable things. You have that, which is so sad. And then you have a couple days ago, as all of you know, the Supreme Court, um, the ruling on marriage. And so I just want to briefly, briefly, briefly touch on that ruling. Um, The sermon is not going to be about that. Um, But I wanted to, at the beginning of the sermon, hit on that for our church. As all of you know, the Supreme Court ruled this week to basically, in effect, redefine marriage for our country. And so in light of this, um, in light of this, um, the elders of the Austin Stone, uh, we've written our statement on this, on marriage. And we're doing it because God has clearly spoken in his word what he created marriage to be, what marriage is, and the purpose he has for it. And I want you to know we posted that on the city this last Friday, so if you want to uh, check that out, you can. It's online already. Um, But I want you to know the reason we wrote this, the reason we wrote this was not out of fear of the future. It was not out of hatred for other people. No, the reason we wrote this is because we want more than anything to faithfully represent who God is. We want to honor him and what he said said he's like and what what his purposes are and what he wants for his people and for the world. And so that's why we wrote it. Because it's clear in God's word what he wants on this topic. Now, if you're in Christ, can I tell you right now, you have no reason to fear. You have no reason to fear because our God governs all things. He's sovereign over all things, including Supreme Court rulings. He's in control of everything. And so we don't know what he's up to in all of this, but I can tell you one thing for sure he is doing for his people. He's going to do good to us in this season. He's going to make us more into the image of Jesus in this season. And can I tell you, there's no greater gift God could give to you and give to me than to make you more like Christ. And so whatever that may mean for us as a people in the future, whatever that may mean, I want you to know that God's word, his promises, his spirit enables us as a people to be steadfast, to be faithful to his word, and still be humble and still be loving in any and every circumstance he brings our way. Jesus got out of the grave. No ruling can change that. No ruling can change this. I want to read to you a text real quickly just to give us some encouragement and then we'll go into the sermon. 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We have great hope in this season. All right, so now on to the sermon. Now on to the sermon. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians 6. To Ephesians chapter 6. Um, we've actually been working our way through the book of Ephesians for about 18 months. We've been here for a long time. And so we're finally coming to the very end of Ephesians. Today is actually our last sermon in the book of Ephesians. We've been going through this book for a little while now. We're now at the end of that letter. 
And through this book, God has shown us all the unimaginable blessings he's given to us in Christ. As we said this several times before, but basically to sum it up, Ephesians is broken up into two parts. The first part is all about what God has done, his work to secure everything for us. And in the other part of the book, the second half of the book we've been recently, is how we now live in response to all the grace he's given to us. And we've seen that, okay, the way we honor God and his grace is by having unity in the church. It's by having sexual purity. It's by forgiving one another. It's by parenting in the word. It's by working hard. It's by spiritual warfare. All these different ways we live now to honor the grace he's given to us. So the very end of this incredible letter, here's what Paul did. Paul has this concluding statement for the church. He's told them all these incredible things. He has this concluding statement for the church of divine blessing. A divine blessing. And he does this in every letter. Every single letter that Paul writes in the New Testament, he ends with this concluding thought. And all of the statements emphasize the active grace of God among the people of God. Every single statement, he's emphasizing the active grace of God in the lives of the church. Let's read the, the verse together. Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So the first thing to note from this passage in this text, which we won't spend our time on today, but one thing to note is just the love and the warmth Paul has for this church. Remember, this is Paul, rigorous theologian, pioneer missionary, incredible leader, and yet he's writing to this people and he ends with, hey, I want to know how you're doing. I'm sending this brother to the church. I want, I want to know how you're doing. I want you to know how I'm doing so I can encourage you. And the only note for us is after the, at the end of the day of all the theological things we've learned in the book of Ephesians, what should define the church is still love for one another, warmth for one another, a question of asking one another, hey, how are you doing, by the way? How are, how are you? How, how's your relationship with God? How are you doing? And we ask those, the Paul asked the questions, not so he can critique them. He says, so I can encourage you. So we need to be that kind of people. Just as one note of instruction for us before we move on is the church is meant to be a people of warmth and love, but we ask those kinds of questions so we can encourage one another. But what we're going to do, the very last sermon of Ephesians, we're going to focus on the very last verse. The very last verse. Look at verse 24 again. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul is pronouncing a blessing of God's grace towards those who love Jesus. See, this verse highlights the most fundamental claim in all the Bible. This verse highlights the most fundamental claim in all of the Bible. The most fundamental claim in the scriptures, the most fundamental claim that God is speaking to us through the Bible is that God's grace, God's plan of salvation comes to people only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of the Bible. That everything God is doing, he's doing through Jesus. That the, the message of the scriptures is this. God wants to give away grace and God wants to give away mercy. God wants to give away his love. But to who? To people through Jesus and Jesus alone. He's full of grace, full of love, but he only wants to give it to people through his son. And that's the way Paul started the, the, the book of Ephesians, by the way. Paul started the book of Ephesians by telling us this, by reminding us of all that God has done, all the riches he's given to you in Christ comes to you in Christ. 
Not through any other means, not through some church, not through some person, but only through Jesus. So what I want to do really quickly is go back to Ephesians 1 and just remind us to stir afresh in our hearts all that God has done to remind us that this theme of the Bible is God gives grace through Jesus. Don't turn there, but just look at the screen behind me. Ephesians 1, 3. Remember the first 10 verses really quickly. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's he saying? God the Father gives every blessing, every right, every privilege to who? To people who are in Christ. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's through Jesus. What, do you, what happens? You're made holy and blameless before God. So now you can stand before God with confidence. Why? Because you're holy and blameless through Jesus. And then he says, through Jesus, what happens? You're adopted as sons and daughters of God. And now God is your daddy. He's your father. And why has that happened? It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. The reason you've been made a son, the reason you've been made a daughter of God, so you can revel in the fact that our God is full of love and mercy and grace. Verse 7. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, with which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Through the blood of Christ, what happens? You're bought for God. You didn't come. You weren't cheap for God. God gave you his son's own life for you to make you what? Washed of sin. Every sin you've committed, washed of it. It's forgotten. And now you can know God without any fear of punishment. That he did this not according to human grace, but according to his riches of eternal grace. It is according to his infinite riches that he lavished on you. He lavishes. He gives you more grace than maybe you even need. All through Jesus. Last verse, verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Through Jesus, God is going to make everything new. Like the world that, that everyone's longing for, the world without dysfunction or brokenness or evil or racism or anything else, that world's coming, he says. He's like, I'm making it right now, but how is he making it? Through Christ. He's going to remake everything. He's going to remake mountains and remake human bodies. And he's going to unite all things in Christ. In the new heavens, new earth, everything will consciously orbit around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything God's doing, every act of healing, every redemptive work he's doing is coming through Jesus. So it's impossible for any of us to overstate his importance. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't overstate his significance or his worth or his value, which is why it's so perplexing to me and to us how often Jesus is assumed in the church and forgotten in the world. How often he's assumed in the church. How often you and I will gloss over Jesus to get to our own personal concerns and struggles. How often we'll fly by Christ to get to more practical issues. We'll talk more about the church than about him. 
We'll talk more about how we're doing than about him. How easily he's assumed in the church. Yeah, 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 Jesus, let's get to more important things. And then in the world, he's forgotten and ignored. If you ask most people who you ask who don't know Jesus outside of the church, if you ask them, what's Christianity all about? I've done this several times before, and just about every time, the response is, Christianity is about being a good person, about doing good things. That's basically it. Most of the time, Jesus doesn't come up, and if Jesus does come up in that conversation, here's what happens. Typically, it's Jesus is the teacher who teaches you how to be nice. Jesus is the teacher who introduces you to all the real, true, most important things like being kind to other people. Can I tell you, the truth of Christianity is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every truth points to him and his work to save you, to save me, the work that only he could do. So the main teaching of Christianity is that Jesus alone has done everything needed for you to be brought back to God, the God who made you, the God you're made for, and the God you lost in your sin. That he alone can do all of that That's why God's message to the world is not do good, be better, work harder, so I'll finally love you. That's not the message God has for the world. The message God has for the world is you could never work hard enough for me to love you. You can't do it. He says, but I've worked towards you. You don't work your way back to me. I actually work towards you. And now the message for the world is to receive Jesus Christ, have a relationship with him, love him. So everything God's doing is through Jesus. And Paul says, grace to those who love Jesus. Now, the relationship you have to have with Jesus, though, is one of love. It's really important. The Bible, every word's important. And so grace comes to those who have a relationship of love for Jesus. Look at verse 24 again. He says, grace be with all. Okay, so he says, grace be with all. Well, who are the all? Next phrase, who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Notice what he's saying. Grace doesn't come to all people generally. Grace comes to all who love the Lord Jesus. That's what the text says. What he's saying in that word love incorruptible means a love undying, a love unfading, that you love him forever. See, the evidence that you've actually seen Jesus for who he actually is is love for him. It's not, it's not that you know a lot of things about him. So he doesn't say grace to all who know things about Jesus, who can tell you all of his stats. It doesn't say grace to all who have done things for Jesus, served other people. It doesn't say grace to all who've been around Jesus or who attend church and who are familiar with his teachings. No, it says grace to all who love the Lord Jesus. What the scriptures say all the time is that when you, you actually have been saved, when God gives you eyes to see spiritually who Jesus is, your response is love. Love for Christ is a defining characteristic of someone who God has saved. I can give you text after text in the New Testament to show you this. I'll give you three. I'll give you three. The way you test your relationship with God it's by testing your love for Jesus. John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, more than they love me, is not worthy of me. 
And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Last one, 1 Corinthians 16. If anyone has no love for the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. To truly know God is to love Jesus. Is to love him. That's why you have to ask yourself, after we preach this entire book of Ephesians, you have to ask yourself the question, do you love him? You really got to ask yourself that question, do I actually love Jesus? Because you could read the whole book of Ephesians, listen to every sermon we've taught, and agree with it, know it, but if you don't love the Jesus we're talking about, reading the book of Ephesians and all the blessings that are within the book of Ephesians, it's like window shopping for you. Reading the Bible without a love for Jesus is like window shopping. You can see all the great things God's given, but none of them are yours. Grace to all who love the Lord Jesus. That's why we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we love him? Do we love him? And you have to ask it honestly. Often if you have church background or you're in church at all, we kind of go, yeah, 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 of course I, of course I love Jesus. Of course. I'm here, aren't I? I'm not at brunch, Right? Of course I love him. But it's one of those questions we have to look for actual evidence. There's too much at stake. There's too much at stake for you to say, yeah, yeah, sure, I do. No, we are people who don't often actually say, no, let me see if there's evidence of love for him. Actual evidence. Because the joys of knowing Jesus, the promises in Christ, the hope in him, the power in him, the future life in him, they're too great for you to go, I think, too great for you to kind of casually attend church and never really be introspective. And also the sorrows of not loving him are too great. The empty promises you'll receive in this life, too damaging. Your death to come, the wrath of God to come are too overwhelming for you not to know the answer to this question. So if you're gonna really be able to ask yourself the question, do I love him, you have to know what it means to love him, right? It's impossible to know if you love him or not if you don't even know what it means to love him. And especially with the word love, we use it so often. We use it so often in so many different contexts that it's easy to be kind of confused about whether or not we do. So let me give you some framework. Let me give you some framework, a way to diagnose if you love Christ or not or where you are in your love for Christ. When I think about love and how the scriptures talk about love, there's two primary components of love in the Bible. Two primary components, affection and allegiance. Affection and allegiance. To love Jesus is to have an affection for him that supersedes all other delights, all other pleasures. Love for him means you have an actual affection, delight, joy in him, and it also means to love Jesus is to have an allegiance to him where he is your highest loyalty and you reorient everything around him. It's affection and Allegiance, And more often than not, what I've noticed in us as a people is when we talk about love, we tend to drift to one or the other. When we talk about love, we tend to drift towards one or the other, and we see the other aspect as being optional. See, the other aspect of love being a good thing, a great thing, but not an essential thing. That's often how we think about it. But affection and allegiance are so tightly woven together that to lack one is to lack love. To lack affection or allegiance to Christ is to be lacking in love for him. So some of us in this room, 
we tend to think that affection for Jesus is optional. That affection, joy, excitement for Jesus is optional. Good thing, but optional. But the main way you express love is through allegiance. Uh, My first ministry position was college director here at the Stone about six years ago. First time I ever done ministry. So the first trip I ever led of college students was um, to the Passion Conference in Atlanta. So I took college students there. We got in two vans and drove through the night. It was terrible. And we got there. I love my job, but that was awful. And we get there, and it's massive. It's 30,000 students. And so what they did is they tried to shrink it down a little bit, and they had community groups you could be a part of and breakout sessions. And so they had one for college leaders. So I'm a new Direct, a new person on staff, new in ministry. No one in my family's been in ministry, so I don't even know what it really means. And so I'm looking forward to get to know other people. So we get there in our, our community group of college leaders, and we're in a small group of about seven or eight people. And this is great. We, we get to know them. We get to hang out with them. But I remember there was one time in particular where at the very end of the conference, someone in the group was confessing they, had, they didn't really enjoy Jesus anymore. They're just being honest. It was a good thing. They were just saying, hey, I don't really enjoy Jesus the way I used to. Like I used to be excited to follow him, now I'm not. Used to have passion and zeal for him, now I don't. And they were just confessing that. And people were going around encouraging them, giving them scriptures, praying for them kind of thing. And I remember one guy in particular said, yeah, that's normal. He said, yeah, you know, that's just part of what it means to follow Jesus. Like you start really like being passionate and zealous for him and having affection for him, but over time that just fades. That's just the way it is. And as he said that, I remember sitting there thinking, praying like, God, could you shut him up right now? That'd be great. You ever prayed that before? You should try it. Um, it didn't work, but I prayed it anyway. And then I prayed, God, honestly, I was like, I don't want that story. Like, I don't want a story where I used to really have affection for Jesus, and now I'm just cold towards him. Now, let me say this. As you get older, the way you express emotions change, for sure. But affection, delight, excitement, joy, those are things that should remain throughout your love for Jesus. And what this guy was saying, he would not say it was a bad thing to have affections for Jesus. He said, it's a good thing, it's a great thing. But in his mind, it was an optional thing. It was an optional thing. What he was saying is, what you need to do is be faithful. Be faithful, have allegiance, and that's what God is after. Affections, don't worry about those things. Be faithful, be obedient. But can I tell you, that's not true. That's not true. Listen to how Peter talks about this love. 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Look at that text. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And then he repeats the same sentence. Same phrase to, to give you more of a definition. He says, th- again, he says, though you do not now see him, he repeats that first statement. He says, you believe in him. He's explaining what it means to love him. You believe in him, and what does he say? And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. God is not after some version of love and allegiance that lacks delight and joy. God's not honored by you having all this allegiance and you organize, you, you organize your entire life Everything in your life, you're going to be faithful and steadfast, and you do it without joy, without passion, without delight, without zeal. He's not honored by that. So the question you have to ask yourself, really, not ask about somebody else, but for you as a person, when's the last time you enjoyed Jesus? For real, like when's the last time you didn't fake it? Like when's the last time 
you talked about them and you just smiled naturally. You didn't force it. You didn't fake it. It just happened naturally. When's the last time you were praying and you were excited that you ever even got to know him? When's the last time that happened? You know, and I'll tell you this, I want you to know, everyone's going to express their affection in different ways. So we're on the same page. I'm not saying everyone expresses it in the same way. We have different temperaments, different personalities. But here's a good way to test if you're enjoying Jesus. Here's a really easy way. Think about how you express excitement, joy, happiness in other areas of life. So how do you respond when you enjoy something in another area of life? When you watch a game or someone gives you an encouragement or you get a new device, how do you respond? How do you as a person express your enjoyment of something? Well, whatever, however you do it in whatever context that is, that's your barometer to say, do I do that with Jesus? Because can I tell you, there is no person There is no person who doesn't worship and doesn't get excited. It's just a matter of over what? Over what? I've met all sorts of people who say, I'm around Jesus and I'm not really excitable, but then you find the thing they love and the thing they're passionate about, the thing they have affection for, and they light up. And they light up. Because here's the thing, when you see Jesus for who he actually is, the response is gonna be affection. The response is gonna be joy and excitement. I can't believe I get to know him. So to love Jesus is to have an affection for him. But also, but also is to have allegiance. And there's others of us in this room who treat allegiance to Jesus as optional. We think it's a good thing to obey him, be faithful to him, but the main thing we're concerned about is our affections for him. I had a buddy in college who kind of, he tended this direction. One, one day he had committed a sin. He committed sins, so he went to the Bible, and as he's reading the Bible, he started to get really convicted over that sin and more sins. And so later that day, he came to confess this sin to me, and he was telling me about, about it and, and walking through that. And he told me that as he's reading his Bible, it just made him feel more and more guilty, and it made him feel bad. And so he said, yeah, Tyler, God told me not to read my Bible. I said, what? Um, he said, what? He said, yeah, God said not to read my Bible anymore. I said, like, our God, like Holy Spirit God, or like who are you talking about? He says, no, yeah, I was reading the Bible. It wasn't making me feel that great. I just kind of felt down, and I just felt like he told me not to read the Bible. I said, that's funny. He didn't say that. Um, and I showed him in the Bible. I said, no, he says to meditate on the word day and night. He says in Colossians 3, to, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Bro, I don't know what happened, but that wasn't the Holy Spirit who told you that. So we got in this conversation, and and I'll be honest, this is like 20-year-old Tyler, so I'm not, I'm just yelling probably at this point. Um, And so we argue, like we, this is college, right? So you're arguing over all this stuff, and and I remember that we were getting nowhere, and finally, and this is the, the line he dropped, and I was like, well, I guess we're done. He said, Tyler, I know God, and that's what he told me. I said, I called him a bad name, and I left. That's what happened. Um, It wasn't godly at all. I may have been right, but I wasn't being godly, that's for sure. But here's what his economy was. Looking back, here's what his economy. His economy was, my affections are most important, and anything that would make my affections not always exuberant and happy every moment of the day can't be God. That was his economy. So if he's reading the Bible and it's convicting him of sin, 
It's challenging him on sin, and he has a little sorrow over it. That can't be from God. He would never want that. In his mind, allegiance to the word of God is a good thing, a great thing, but if it makes my affections sour at all, then it must be a bad thing. That's the way he perceived the world. His affections were the most important way to express love for Jesus, not allegiance. But can I tell you, that's not true. Listen to how Jesus himself says he wants to be loved. John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. It's an incredible thing to think about. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. God does not simply want you to have good feeling towards him while you neglect to obey him. He doesn't just want you to have good feelings towards him while you neglect to obey him. He's not honored by us claiming great delight, great affection, great times in worship while our lives and our schedules and our bank accounts and our relationships would say our primary allegiance is not to him. He's not honored by that. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. How has your allegiance to Jesus caused you to reorganize your life? Really practically, how how has your allegiance to him and what he said and what he wants caused you to change things in your life? Allegiance that says, okay, even though it's hard for me to forgive this person, I'm going to. My king said so. Okay, even though I saved this money for something else, I know I need to give it to this. Okay, even though I love this entertainment, even though maybe there's nothing necessarily bad with this channel or this thing or this device, it just numbs my heart to Jesus, so I'm gonna get rid of it. See, a good question to ask yourself when it comes to your allegiance to Jesus is this one. Would your life be any different if Jesus wasn't your king? Would your life be any different if Jesus was not your king? Or would your life basically be the same? You just do different things on Sundays, maybe. Now, can I tell you, if you're asking yourself that question right now and you're panicking because you're like, oh, I can't think of anything. It's okay, calm down. There are areas in life where the way Jesus changes it is not this drastic thing, but this subtle thing. There are areas in life where your intentionality would change, why you do things would change, for sure. But can I tell you, if over time you genuinely have your highest loyalty to Jesus, your life's going to change. It's impossible for it not to if you genuinely have allegiance. If your life doesn't change, then that probably means your allegiance for him is weaker than you think. It's weaker than you think. There should be some things that you do because Jesus said to do them. That's what allegiance and loyalty means. It says you supersede every dream, every ambition, every relationship. What you say trumps everything else. You are my primary allegiance. Here's the thing. When you see Jesus for who he is and you have all this affection for him, you're going to have the allegiance with it. You're going to say, okay, I love you more than anything. Whatever you say, I'll do. To love Jesus is to both have affection and allegiance for him. Here's what I've found in my life. In life of this church, we often don't ask these questions about our affection or allegiance for Jesus because really we're scared of the answer. Like really, like the reason we don't ask this question, the reason we fail to be introspective typically is because deep down we don't want to know the answer. 
And here's why. Here's the faulty thinking we have. We think if I find that I'm lacking any love for him in any area, then that means I'm not a Christian. Right? We think, okay, if I tell somebody, hey, I'm struggling to have love for Jesus in this area, you're like, okay, take me away, kick me out, I'm done. Right? No, that's not what's going to happen. Every Christian in this life is going to have areas where your affection for Jesus is weak and your allegiance to him is waffling. It's going to happen. You still have sin. And so sin is going to keep you from loving Jesus in all the ways you want to and all the ways God has made you to. So here's the thing for you. If you have conviction right now over an area where your affection is weak or your allegiance is weak, can I tell you that's a very good sign. It's a very good sign. It's a good sign when you have conviction and sorrow over areas where you know your love for Jesus is weak. That's a sign God's near you. It really is. Too often we think conviction is a sign God is angry and that he's mad and that he doesn't love me. Quite the opposite. Conviction means he's not going to let your love for Jesus be extinguished. He's going to keep fanning it into flame and calling out areas where it's weak and give you more power to love Christ. So that's you, and you have sorrow and conviction over areas. Can I tell you, the Christian life should be marked by that, because you still have sin. So repentance and faith should be something that happens consistently for us. Now, if you're in here, and for some time you've been content about areas of your life where you lack affection, lack allegiance, and you're content, really. Like deep down you have no real desire to change. And you know that. You may say certain things, but... You know deep down you don't really care. Can I tell you if that's you, you should be concerned. You really should be concerned. You should not tell yourself, no, 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 God forgives me and God loves me. He doesn't, he doesn't, really, he doesn't care about these things. You should not reassure yourself with the promises of grace when you don't want to honor the one with all the grace. That means your heart is hard towards him. When you grow calloused and cold, that's not a sign of maturity. It's not a sign that you just get grace. No, it's a sign that you don't. If that's you and attending church, I'm glad you're here. But you need God to give you a softer heart towards him. Conviction and sorrow over a lack of love for Jesus is a very good thing, godly thing, spirit-filled thing. So there is no ambition, no aim, no goal more important than striving to love this Christ. There's nothing more important, no aim, even good aims you have, like desires to be good in business or family or whatever else your desires are, your ambitions are, they're all good things, but none of them compare to knowing Christ because you'll never meet anyone like him. I'm telling you, everyone you're going to meet is going to fail compared to him. If you're a Christian, you know that. If you've been around Christ, you know that. Like the people you respect most are going to pale in comparison to him. The people you love most will never satisfy the way he will. That's why he is the aim of the church and the aim of his people because he's the one who has all the life we need and all the life we're after. That's why the book of Ephesians has been this window, so to speak. The whole Bible, I don't know if you realize this, the Bible is this authoritative, sure window This window, not into a book, but a window into the God who's here among us. This window you press your face against to say, that's what he's like. Those are his plans. That's his might. That's his love for a person like me. Ephesians has been this window for the church to look through and say, 
that's how great he is. And when you see his greatness and you see, okay, no one really honestly, genuinely compares to this Christ, that's what stirs up your affection and allegiance for him. The way you make yourself love Jesus is not by saying, okay, self, love Jesus. Doesn't work that way. You make yourself and cause yourself to grow in love for Jesus by looking at him. By going to the word, that window, looking through the window and saying, oh, that's what he's like. Because your love for Jesus is going to rise and fall and rise and fall. But when you look through the window of the word, you begin to see, oh, his love for me is steady and faithful and actually ever increasing. Ever increasing. I want to close by reading to you this prayer Paul had in the book of Ephesians. Listen to what God has for you if you're in Christ. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When you see that sort of love for you, it stirs up your love for him. May we not be a church who reads the whole book of Ephesians and just has intellectual knowledge and has some practical things to do. Would it make us a people who genuinely love this Jesus, who loved you first and will love you to the end? May it give you a hope that you are going to keep loving Jesus and all of his grace will be given to you. Why? Because he's going to keep loving you. Let's pray together. Just in this moment before I pray, would you just, the quietness of your heart, tell God where you're at. If you love him, tell him you love him. Tell him how great your affections and allegiance is to him if you're in a good place. If you're in a place where you know there's areas of your life where you're apathetic or areas of your life where your love is weak and your affection is weak and your allegiance is weak, confess it to him. Be honest with him. He's not, he doesn't disqualify you because you struggle. But he has more grace and more love to show you. He wants to show you that the cross of Christ purchased more love for you than you know what to do with. Father, I'm thankful that you are more full and more generous and more kind and more loving than we could ever imagine. That through Jesus, you have made us such loved children that if when we see it one day, when we see in full with our eyes just how much you have loved us the entire time through Christ, every single promise, every single call to action, every single thing you said to us that was hard, we'll understand and say, this God loved me more than I ever knew. My father loved me more than I ever knew. 
This Jesus loved me more than I ever knew. So Jesus, would you do what only you can and show us how great your love is? Holy Spirit, would you show us how great his love is and stir in us affection and stir in us allegiance? That we wouldn't make peace with those areas, but we keep coming back to you again and again and again, begging you, God, cause me to love Jesus for who he actually is. God, I am so thankful that the reason this is going to work, the reason we're going to make is because you're not going to stop loving us. And God, it's your love and your presence that will give us all we need. So God, make us a people who sing passionately and live lives that cost us things so we could see that you are worth all of it. God, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's stand together.